My name is Darry Andrews. My name is Susan Fry. My name is Nikki Weinset. I am a homemaker. I am a mom. I am a mathematics professor. I gave my life to Christ when I was eight years old. I gave my life to Christ in 1994. I gave my life to Christ when I was 12 years old. I've been at New Life since July 1999. I have been at New Life for four years. I grew up in a home where my mom took us to church and my dad was supportive but didn't attend with us. I grew up going to church every time the doors were open. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is sharing my faith with others. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is consistency and daily devotions. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is trusting completely in Him. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. We are um, resuming our series today in the book of 1 Corinthians called Everybody. We took a little hiatus for our Easter season and uh, enjoyed that. Heard from Don Piper last week who gave us uh, a glimpse of heaven. But today we're coming back to 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 4. You know, one thing about teaching through a book of the Bible verse by verse is you can't really sidestep hard, difficult passages. I mean, what would you think if I came up and said, well, we're going to skip this passage and go right on to the next one. You can't really do that. When you're preaching topically, uh, you can conveniently avoid hot-button issues. But uh, if you've declared your intention to go verse by verse, um, you can't really avoid that. And and already in this series, I've had people say to me, you know, when, what weekend are you going to do chapter 5? Because I want to be there. Or 7, or... 11 or 12 or 14 and you know we're going to cancel our vacation plans and make sure we're there to see you squirm when you are trying to explain those hard truths from those chapters well thank you for that i love you too (laughs) there are difficult topics in the bible aren't there there are truths that are hard to swallow there are challenges at interpreting certain passages of scripture But let's remember that as disciples, followers of Jesus, we don't sit in judgment on this book. We let this book judge us. We come under the authority of the word of God. And um, we believe that God is telling us the truth in his word, even when it's hard to hear. And I just want to encourage you to brace yourself, because from here on out in 1 Corinthians, we're tackling one difficult topic, one hard truth after another, all the way through the end of this book. So just kind of prepare yourself for that and Let's trust the heart of God and be willing to have him renew our minds and even reshape our view of him through his word, if that's what's called for. So towards that end, let me pray for us right now. Father God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would talk to us today, this congregation, about our pride, about our arrogance, about any pockets of pride in our hearts that might be there. Lord, you've called us to be humble followers of yours, and that's, that's what we want. And so uh, speak to us freely today. May we respond to your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the passage we're looking at today in, in chapter 4, just, just reading through it reveals two things. First thing it reveals is that there were some people in that church in Corinth who were proud, puffed up, full of themselves, and arrogant, and 
Paul really, at this point in his letter, is, is discerning that this was the core issue in this church, pride, that was giving rise to all the other problems and issues that they were experiencing. And in the second part of this section we're looking at, Paul is going to deal with pride and arrogance like a dad, like a father. And so what we have in this passage is a spiritual father figure dealing with some of his arrogant, rebellious, puffed-up spiritual offspring. You know, everybody needs to be fathered, right? Everybody needs to be fathered. In our culture, so many kids are growing up without a dad or without a dad who's around or with a dad who's not fathering very well, and it's wreaking havoc in our culture. We're going to watch and see how Paul, as a spiritual father, deals with his spiritual kids, people that he loved, people that he had led to Christ, but who had become infected with spiritual pride. So let's look at the profile of the arrogant Christian that he portrays and paints in this passage. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6 is where we'll begin. He writes this, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. I have applied all these things. All what things? Well, the things he's been writing so far. And particularly the things he started writing in chapter 3 where he's declaring that he and Apollos, the first and second pastors of that church, are simply servants of Jesus Christ. Not rock star pastors, not superstars to be elevated and put on a pedestal, but just servants of Christ. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying, I apply those principles to myself and Apollos for your sake so that you learn not to go beyond what is written. In other words, not to esteem your spiritual leaders more highly than the Bible talks about. Now, the Bible does talk about honoring your spiritual leaders. It talks about esteeming them, holding them in high regard. But it does not allow worshiping them, turning them into celebrities, and lining up behind them and forming fan clubs and looking with disdain on those who are not in your group. And you know that's what was going on in that church. And so he says, I'm writing this so that you won't go beyond what's written and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Here's his first mention of arrogance. This word, it means to be puffed up, inflated. It's a picture of a frog just before croaking, being all puffed up like that. And he's saying, some of you Corinthians, you're all full of yourselves. You're, you're arrogant, you're puffed up, you're proud of your spiritual mentor, your spiritual pastor or preacher, and you know, you got the T-shirt, you got the tattoo, you're in this guy's group, and you're looking down and, and despising those who aren't as godly and spiritual as you are, supposedly. And so... What he's pointing out here is that arrogant Christians love feeling superior to other people. Know anybody like that? Are you like that? Um, if you're not sure, ask somebody. They'll, they'll tell you. They'll tell you. And so he begins this, this description of arrogant, arrogant people. You know the kind. People who think they know it all. People who love feeling superior to other people. They have an independent spirit. They don't think they need anybody telling them what to do. They resist spiritual authority, they're smug, they're proud. Well, that's who he's talking about. And basically he's saying this, it's not evil or wrong to love a certain pastor or a preacher 
or even to hook up with a particular tribe that you really identify with. But when it feeds feelings of superiority in you, when it elevates that person to rock star status, and when it pits Christ-loving Christians against each other and splinters you off into different camps and fan clubs, then that becomes evil. That's what he's saying. You know, what, what starts out as healthy love and loyalty and appreciation for a, your favorite pastor or teacher can, in the flesh, turn into something that's not good. You understand what I'm saying? And so, you know, there in that church, people were saying, well, I, I'm of Paul. I follow Paul. I'm part of Paul's posse. And others were saying, well, no, Apollos is our man. We're, we're in Apollos' army, you know, and we got his T-shirt, and we, we think he's a better teacher than Paul is. And others were saying, well, what about Peter? You know, we follow Peter. Maybe in our day you have Christians who say, well, I am of John Piper, or I am of Matt Chandler, or I'm of Andy Stanley, or I'm of John MacArthur, or I am of this, I am of that. And, you know, it's okay to be appreciative of your leaders or people who are speaking into your life, but it's quite another thing to elevate them to a point that's unhealthy and to look down on others who aren't in your little group. And so Paul is warning against this kind of arrogance where people are feeling superior to other people. Where do you find your identity? Isn't our identity supposed to be found in our relationship with Jesus Christ and our inclusion in his body? But see, arrogant people can't can't stand for that. They're not happy unless they're stirring things up, pitting people against each other, creating camps, and feeling superior. Paul's starting to heat up a little bit as he's writing. In verse 7, he writes this, For who sees anything different in you? In other words, who made you better or superior to anybody else? Or as we used to say in high school, who died and left you in charge? You know, what makes you so great? What do you have that you did not receive? You're boasting and bragging about, you know, your guy, your teacher. Hey, they were a gift to you from God to to bless you and benefit you. In fact, when you stop and think about it, everything we have, we've received. You were born. You didn't have anything to do with that. That was determined by others, by God. Where you were born, your talents, your gifts, your abilities that you have have been given to you and given to me. Our spiritual birth is something the Holy Spirit did in us. Everything that we have, we've received. So where's the cause for bragging? Where's the cause for being all puffed up and arrogant and smug? That's what he's saying. Everything you have, you've received. And if then you've received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? What he's saying is, look, everything you have is from God, so feeling superior to other people doesn't make any sense. You're a walking, talking contradiction. Arrogant Christian, in Paul's mind, were incongruous. They don't go together. You ever feel like a walking, talking contradiction? Like you name the name of Christ, but you realize in your attitude, in your heart, in your lifestyle, it's, it's, it's out of step with the gospel that you claim to believe. So Paul's saying, arrogant Christians are a contradiction in terms. And then, verse 8, now he's really heating up. He's steamed. He's going to start getting sarcastic. But in a sanctified sort of way. So we'll call it sanctified sarcasm, unlike most of our sarcasm, unlike mine, 
His was sanctified. And you know what sarcasm is? It's when, you know, you're saying something, but you really mean the opposite, right? Like somebody drives an old clunker, an old beater up, and you go, hey, nice car, buddy. You actually mean the opposite of the words that you're saying. Well, that's what Paul is going to do here. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich without us. You didn't need us. You've become kings. You're royalty. You've arrived. You've left your teachers in the dust. You're all high and mighty now. And then this little parenthesis, would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. (laughs) Now that you're so high and mighty, could you find a spot maybe for little old me in your kingdom somewhere? Sarcasm. Here's a spiritual father trying to get through to arrogant, puffed-up Christians. And he has a stake in them and in their maturity. He led them to Christ. And so under the control of the Holy Spirit, he uses some biting sarcasm to warn them, admonish them, to unmask their self-deception, to expose their self-sufficient, independent spirit that's not in alignment with the gospel that they would claim to embrace. So his description here, number three, is the arrogant Christians are self-sufficient, selfishly ambitious. They have an independent streak and they disdain spiritual authority. His words are dripping with sanctified sarcasm. I think he was driven to it. And then, verse 9, he shifts the emphasis a little bit from the arrogant Corinthians to the humble and abased apostles. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise in Christ. It's a sarcasm coming back. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute and dishonor. Verse 11, To the present hour, this is going on right now as I Write this, he's saying, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. (laughs) No designer clothing for Paul and the apostles. Their livelihood didn't permit it. We're buffeted. That word literally means we've been beat up. And if you read the book of Acts and read Paul's own descriptions of what he went through as an apostle of Christ, this is an accurate description. Beat up, homeless, nights where we didn't have a place to stay. Verse 12, we labor working with our own hands, which was despised in Greek culture, that kind of work. He said, we do that. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat or we we plead. We don't retaliate. We have become and we are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Is this whining? Does this sound like whining? Is Paul whining about his lot in life as an apostle? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is kind of pulling back the robe of flesh, and he's being transparent about how difficult these arrogant Christians are making the ministry for him. Notice the descriptions. We are like men sentenced to death, a spectacle to the world, and he's drawing upon the the military imagery of the day when a Roman general was victorious in a battle. He would follow that up by taking his victorious soldiers and there would be a parade through the city where they were from. So the Roman generals and his soldiers walking through the city, the crowds, the throngs would gather, people would shout and cheer. 
their guys, and then behind the victorious army, chained and in shackles, would be the captives, soldiers from the defeated army, and at the very end of the procession would be the defeated king. And they would walk through the the city in this parade, and there would be cheers for the hometown guys and jeers for the other guys, and this procession would end up in the arena, and the crowds would filter out into the arena, and the captives, the defeated army soldiers, would be released into this arena along with wild animals who would proceed to tear them limb from limb, and it was entertainment to the masses, to the crowds in that town as they watched these soldiers being mauled. And Paul said, we're like the guys at the end of the procession in this world. We're humiliated, we're mocked, we're jeered, we're laughed at, we're a laughingstock, we're the butt of jokes. And then at the end we get you know, dragged into the arena where we get torn limb from limb. He said, that's my life as an apostle. Hardship, ridicule, humiliation. Then he says, we're fools for Christ's sake. And we already saw how the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, a crucified God, blood having to be spilled as atonement for sin, and then a resurrection, foolishness, craziness, idiocy to the world. And Paul said, we, you know, we go from town to town and people think we're idiots. Weak, despised, poorly dressed, homeless. And then he uses these words, scum and refuse, filth. It, the word it means off-scouring or scrapings, like when you take a Brillo pad and scrape out your, your um, crock pot, you know, after beans were sitting in there for several days. All this, the scrapings that pour out into your Sink. That's what he said. We are. We're, we're scum. We're filth. We're off scouring. We're, we're just the scrapings of the earth. What's he saying? The life of an apostle was not glamorous for the most part. He said, look, my life as an apostle was already hard. I accept that. That's part of God's plan for me. And I expect that kind of treatment from the world. But here's what he's saying. You guys are my kids. You're my spiritual offspring, and you're treating me the same way. Now, apparently, I mean, there was Paul's group of followers in that church who had elevated him, but apparently the others, who were not part of Paul's posse, were despising him. And so he's identifying that group, and he's saying, you know, you're treating me as bad or worse than the world does. Number four, arrogant Christians make the ministry burdensome and difficult for spiritual shepherds. I'm your spiritual father. You're not listening to me. You're not respecting me. You're not heeding what I say. You're arrogant, proud, puffed up, and boastful. And that's making the ministry a heavy, heavy burden to me. Now, around here at New Life, we're not apostles. But we are spiritual shepherds. And we do care for people. And you need to know that most of the time, the ministry here is a joy to us. But I will say that when we try to offer someone godly counsel and they won't listen, or they're like, you know, we don't need that. We don't need you speaking into our lives. We got it going on without you. When they dismiss it or don't take it seriously, that really makes the ministry a burden to us. Same goes for your small group leader, your ministry leader who cares for you and shepherds you and is trying to speak into your life and offering godly counsel. 
Don't marry that guy. He's a jerk. Break off that relationship. It's unhealthy. Call off the divorce proceedings. You don't have biblical grounds for it. Get a new set of friends. Those friends are dragging you down. Get rid of your internet. Get rid of your computer if that's what you have to do. Get in a small group. Start being a dad to your daughter. Don't treat your wife that way. Go to the person who offended you rather than talking about them to other people. Get a spiritual partner. Get in a group. We're not just trying to throw our theological weight around when we say things like that to you. We love you and we want you to thrive in Christ. But arrogant, smug, unteachable, I got it going on without you. I don't need you speaking into my life. I know how to do it better than you. Critical Christians make the ministry a burden to spiritual shepherds. It's true. Any spiritual shepherd will tell you ministry is a mixed bag. There are some glorious days. There's a lot of mundane days. And there's some terrible days. What's probably most disheartening for spiritual shepherds is when people decide that they don't like something you said or they don't like something that you did and they just up and leave the church for supposedly greener pastures without saying a word to you and just walk away. And you need to know that hurts. Those are days when pastors say things like, you know, I think I'm going to go sell cars (laughs) or be a chiropractor or do something else. So may I be so bold as to remind you of a word from the Lord, even though it feels very awkward for me to share this with you. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. Arrogant Christians make life miserable for spiritual shepherds and their self-sufficient, independent, proud attitude is out of step with the gospel that they claim to believe. And this kind of attitude, I must say, begs to be confronted. A conscientious pastor, spiritual leader, small group leader cannot just look the other way when someone has that kind of smug, arrogant attitude. Paul didn't look the other way. He felt compelled to address it. And that's number five. Arrogant Christians need to be confronted by spiritual fathers. Now look how Paul does it. Verse 14. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you've got a lot of people, Corinthians, speaking into your life. You're following after a lot of voices. You don't have many fathers. I became your father. You have one dad. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. But some, verse 18, are arrogant. There's that word again, puffed up. As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you if the Lord will soon, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. Talk. Arrogant people like to hear themselves talk. But it consists in power. So verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? <laughs> a whip? 
You want me to come and kick your butt? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness? What is this? This is basically a tutorial for dads on spiritual fathering. Thank you, Paul. This is brilliant. It's concise. It's spiritual. It's in line with the gospel. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It applies to dads dealing with their rebellious kids. And it applies to spiritual shepherds dealing with arrogant Christians. Now, we should probably state there's no guarantee that they'll listen, right? This is 1 Corinthians. If you go and read 2 Corinthians, his next letter, you'll see that the Corinthians apparently continued on in this vein, continued to despise and dismiss Paul. It was heartbreaking for him, but he still kept confronting ungodly attitudes and behavior. Let's look briefly as I finish up how, we, how he did this. Paul's godly, fatherly confrontation on the back side of your notes. First thing, he affirmed his love for them. Even while he was confronting them, he says, you are my beloved children. You know what? Good dads, dads look at me. Good dads tell their kids they love them. A lot. A lot. Regularly. Even in the midst of confronting their stinky behavior. I love you. I've said this to my kids many, many times over the years. As recently to one of them as last night. (laughs) You know what? I love you. No one loves you like I do. Jesus does. Your mom does. But I love you. I would, I would take a bullet for you. No questions asked. There's something about when you're in the hospital and they wipe off that little newborn and put him in a towel and put him in your arms. Something awakens. You've experienced this, right? Like how? Where did this love, this, where did this love come from? I would die for this child. No questions asked. We need to tell our kids we love them. We need to tell the people in our small groups. If you're a small group leader, I love you guys. I I love you guys. I'm for you. I'm in your court. I'm on your team. Anything I say to you that might be hard or sound confrontational comes out of love. I'm committed to what's best for you. Good dads affirm love. Second, they avoid shaming. Paul wrote, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Good dads don't just scold their kids because their kids made them look bad. Good dads don't shame their kids. They've got their kids' best in mind. But third, good dads do warn their kids. They give warning. I'm not writing this to shame you, he says, but I am writing to admonish you, to warn you. Good dads warn their kids. They warn them about the dangers of pride and arrogance. They warn them about God's discipline of the hard-hearted. They warn them about consequences that are coming if they don't change. You know what? That cell phone you love so much, you're going to say goodbye to it if something doesn't change. Good dads warn appropriately, age appropriately, their kids of consequences. They don't change. Next, good dads establish authority. It's a great point. He wrote this, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus. Good dads teach their kids about authority, beginning with their own authority. Hey, you got lots of friends. you got lots of people speaking in your life. You only got one daddy, and that's me. Listen to me. 
Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction, Proverbs says. Listen to me, son. Listen to me. I've been around the block a few more times than you have. Listen. Come under authority. Come under the umbrella of authority, parental authority. You know, kids who never learn to come under authority struggle as grown-ups. They many times struggle their whole lives. God gives dads to establish authority. This is rare in our culture. Kids who were taught authority well by their dad, but it's so crucial for maturity, isn't it? Next, press the gospel in deep. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know what good dads do? They help their kids understand the gospel. They explain it to them. That's what good spiritual shepherds do. The gospel, that's the centerpiece of who we are. That's what we wrap our lives around. That's what our salvation is based on. Paul said it's of first importance, central, the gospel. And he says, dads, press the gospel into their kids. It's your job, dads, to explain the gospel so that your kids get it. You know that a person's understanding and response to the gospel determines so much. Their, their relationship with God, their eternity, their ability to glorify God with their lives. You know, there is a lifestyle and behavior that accords with the gospel, and there's a lifestyle and behavior that does not accord with the gospel. We ought to know the difference. We must press the gospel in deep. And then how about this next one? He wrote this, I urge you then be imitators of me. (laughs) Guys want to know how to live the Christian life? Just watch me. You say, well, that's proud, that's arrogant. No, it's not. Not for Paul to say that. Not for you to say that if you are living a life that is worth emulating. I mean, can you look your kids in the eyes and say, you know, son, you want to know how to treat women? Do what I do. Watch how I treat your mom. You want to know how to handle your finances in a godly way? Watch me. Watch what we do. Watch how we handle our money. You want to know how to worship God? Imitate me. You want to know how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You want to know how to share the gospel? Do what I do. Do you have that kind of worthy example to follow? Your kids need that. Dads, your kids need to be able to look at you and say, I I want to follow in my dad's footsteps. I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We need to repent when we're wrong. We need to own up with our kids, don't we? And say, I blew it. (laughs) I blew it, son. Forgive me. So stupid. But the general direction of my life is Godward. It's Christ word. I urge you to be imitators of me. And then involve other people. Paul involved somebody else in the lives of his spiritual children. He said, I'm sending Timothy to you to find out what's going on there and to remind you of my ways. Oh, I could spend an hour on this one. But I have like two minutes. Two things stand out. Do your kids see you involved in discipling others? Do your, do your children know that it's important to you to be investing your life in somebody else? Paul had his Timothy, his younger guy that he was pouring his life into, investing in. And he got to the point with Timothy where he was so confident in him that he started sending Timothy to these different places that he had been to remind the people there of how Paul lived his life. 
Do your kids know that discipling other people, pouring your life into other people is important to you? Do they see that? And second, are you getting other adults involved in your kids' lives like Paul did? Paul apparently felt it was important for those Corinthians to have other godly examples in their lives other than just himself, so he sent Timothy to them. I know Shirley and I have always felt like we needed to have other godly adults in our kids' lives. You know what I'm talking about? We've always made it a point to have our kids in our children's ministries here. So they were around table group leaders and other godly adults who were speaking into their lives. And you know how it is with kids. I mean, one of my kids will say to me, Oh, Dad, Pastor Brett said this the other day. And I just got it. It's so good. And I'm like, I've been saying that for a decade. What's with that? You know, you know how it is. Just a different voice reinforcing, saying the same thing. We want our kids involved in our student ministries here in small groups, having other adults. And I appreciate those of you who are speaking into my kids' lives. Are there other adults in your kids' lives? Not as a replacement, but as a supplement. Because look at the next one. Is that letter H? It is on mine. Stay what? Involved. So Paul says, I'm sending Timothy to you, and, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I'm going to find out for myself about these arrogant people, whether they're just all talk or whether they got any power in their lives. So many parents get burnt out by middle school and high school. Just go to the PTO meetings. In elementary school, there's scads of parents. They're all over the place. Middle school, dwindling. High school, crickets. Nobody's there. (laughs) Parents get burnt out. I understand that more now than I ever have. But you know what? we got to stay engaged. Stay connected. That's what Paul did. I'm sending Timothy, but guys, I'm coming. (laughs) I'm coming. Are you personally inspecting to find out what's really going on? Do you know what's on your kid's iPod? Do you know what they're listening to? Do you know what websites they're visiting? Do you know your kids' friends? Do you know what their conversations are about? I know you get to a point where you've got to pry it out of them, right? You get one-word answers. Stay engaged. As a small group leader or a spiritual partner, are you staying engaged, personally finding out what's going on? Or do you need to press in? One uh, pastor said this, if something feels a little funky engage. Don't run the other way. If something seems amiss, find out. Get get in the game, find out. Stay involved. And then present choices. Paul said, what do you wish? (laughs) What do you want? There's two routes we can go here. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at someone and said, you got a choice here, buddy. You got a choice here, ma'am. There's two paths. You can go this way or you can go this way. Let's walk down those roads a little bit and see what's out there if you choose this path. Let's walk down this road a little bit. Part of helping people mature and grow up is helping them identify their choices and the paths and the consequences for those choices. So Paul said, I'm going to give you some choices here. And then finally, kind of this abrupt ending to this section. Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Which hand do you want? The heavy, firm hand of discipline and correction? Or the gentle hand that 
will come alongside you and give you a hug. He's kind of saying, it's up to you based on your response to my warning here. And what he's saying is, we've got to customize our approach. One size fits all does not apply well to parenting. Have you figured this out? Even in your own family, your own kids, you're like, these kids are so different. Do we produce both of those? I mean, and they require different approaches based on their heart condition and how they're responding to you. Depending on your attitude, I'm either coming with a gentle hand or a firm hand. Your choice, depending on how you respond. So how about it, dads? Anything in here that you need to work on? Me, I got tons. Next weekend, we'll see in chapter 5 a very messy situation that was going on in that church in which the arrogant people in in that church were demonstrating exactly how arrogant they really were. And we're going to see that Paul is much more likely to come with that firm hand, that rod of correction and discipline, than to come with the gentle hand. And so I hope you'll be here next week. But let's take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to apply what we've heard today to us, spiritually, personally, collectively, I've got several application points for you to consider this morning, okay? Maybe we've been talking about pride and arrogance and smugness and feeling superior and pitting people against each other. Maybe you are that. (laughs) And maybe you're looking around, but God's saying, no, this is you. Maybe you'd say, God is speaking to me about my own arrogant attitude as a Christian, how out of line it is with the gospel, and I'm asking him for the grace to repent and to humble myself before him. I've had to repent of a lot these last few years. You just need to know that. And I'm still repenting. I think in one sense, Christians really are just repenting sinners. Or maybe God's bringing to mind for you somebody else that you know who is exhibiting these qualities of arrogance. And, and you're wondering, God, do you want me to go talk to them? You know, confronting proud people is hard because they, is hard because they want none of it. In fact, that's one way proud people are revealed by how they respond to correction, how they respond to confrontation. Maybe you know someone and God's talking to you about you being the one to confront them and you just need God's grace for that and his direction and how to go about that. Maybe you'd say God's convicting me of my need to be more humble and teachable and let others speak into my life. Maybe you aspire to spiritual leadership. Maybe you want to be a church planner or a pastor, or a ministry leader, or a shepherd. You want to you have spiritual oversight. And maybe it looks so glamorous to you. Yeah, I want to be in that position where people look up to me and they hang on my every word and all of that. You need to know there's a, there's a downside, there's a reality side to spiritual shepherding and ministry. And maybe God's message to you today is, are you willing to accept that? Are you ex- willing to accept the hard side like my servant Paul was going through? You'll need grace for that. Maybe you need a mentor or spiritual partner or a coach in your life and you need to seek out somebody in that role. Maybe you're a dad here today and just say, you know, I need to be a better dad. I need to re-engage with my kids. Or maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe that's your dealing of a blow to pride is saying, you know what, I'm I'm gonna go submit to Christian baptism coming under the authority of Christ, following him, wearing that badge of salvation by being baptized. So bow your heads, would you?
And if you would like to be baptized, um, you can go right now. Take that blue card. Take a moment to fill it out. Ladies over here on my left and guys over here on my right. Anyone who would like to be baptized this morning. You're saved. You're born again. You believe what's on that blue card. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I've repented of my sins. I believe the gospel. Men and women. You can come right now and be baptized. Anybody else? Bring that blue card with you. We'd love to rejoice with you as you take that step of submission and obedience to Christ. So, Father, uh, from your word today and through your spirit, may you deal a blow to our pride. Lord, any of us who have pockets of pride in our hearts, will you just puncture that pride right now and remind us nothing that we have was earned. We've been given everything that we have received. There's no real reason to be arrogant or feel superior to other people. In particular, our salvation and the gospel came to us free of charge. In fact, we could never have earned it. Lord, may New Life Church not ever be known as a proud, arrogant, smug, superior church, but humble always, repenting regularly listening to spiritual authority, coming under leadership, having not an independent spirit, but an interdependent spirit. We desperately need your grace if this is going to be true of us. So Lord, work and receive our worship now, I pray in Christ's name.